Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it, or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode, whatever. I guarantee your response, alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? No one is born a rock star. Okay, maybe in terms of their attitude, but not in terms of vocation. You got to have the talent and you need to put in the work, the 10,000 hours or whatever, if you want to achieve actual rock star status. But that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And before you get to the stage where people acknowledge your rock star-ness, there are lots of twists and turns and false starts and dead ends. Later, when you're rich and famous, these early attempts become part of your archaeological record. Some of the stuff may be found in shallow graves, but the rest may be buried very, very deeply and need serious excavation work. Finding this material used to be hard. Tapes were locked away in vaults. Other early music on tape was erased, recorded over so that the tape could be reused. Cassettes were placed in shoeboxes and lost in closets. Music that was released went out of print and was no longer available for sale. There were fires that destroyed archives, storage sites that were wrecked with water damage. And then there were all the legal disputes. Who owned all these old recordings? Which member of the band? Was it the record label, a publisher, somebody else? Until that can be sorted out, this music remained unheard. Some of this material did leak out and was released on bootleg albums and CDs, but they were often very hard to come by. Then the internet hit. Slowly, first through file-sharing sites like Napster, these demos and alternate takes and long-lost recordings started changing hands. And then came YouTube. That's a treasure trove of old music. Finally, there are box sets and reissues. As physical music sales drop, record labels are looking deep into the catalogs to find stuff that might entice fans to buy high-margin physical product. The result is that today, a lot of the heavy archaeological excavations have already been done for us. And I think it's time we sifted through some of the results. Don't you? This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to go all Indiana Jones with this episode. We're going to dig deep into the archives of music recorded and sometimes released by famous artists before they got famous. Here's an example of that. This is a really extreme example, too. I'm going to play some of this song, okay? You tell me the name of the singer. He is super popular, extremely successful. Tell me the singer. About two years ago, working in a rodeo, I saw the strangest looking man playing in a rock and roll band. Okay, that should be enough. Did you figure out who was singing? Hands up everyone who said Jack White. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's, that's wrong. 
The name of the song is California Flash. It's from a band called Attila, as in Attila the Hun. This is a group that was formed in 1969. Two guys, a two-man band, decades before this became the norm. And the singer's name was Billy Joel. Yeah, that, that Billy Joel. Years before he became known as the Piano Man, he was in this rock group from New York. They released one album, a self-titled thing in 1970, and this record has made several lists of the worst rock albums of all time. So there's something to put on your list the next time you head to a record show looking for something stupendously weird. Uh, Attila from 1970, a self-titled album. All right, let's do this again. Take a listen, and you tell me the singer. Any, any idea there? Okay, the song is called No Time for Love. It appears on a demo tape recorded in 1980 by a band called Emmy and the Emmys. In this case, Emmy stood for the letter M, and M was short for Madonna. Emmy and the Emmys was her first attempt at leading a post-punk band. Didn't work, but within four years, everybody in the world was talking about Madonna. Now let's move on to a band called Bad Radio. When Eddie Vedder moved from Chicago to San Diego, he got a job booking bands in a club. He also worked security at a hotel, he worked at a gas station, and he spent a lot of time surfing. When he wasn't doing any of that, Eddie was working on music. He was in a variety of bands. One was called The Butts, another was Surf and Destroy. There was Indian Style, which featured future Rage Against the Machine drummer Brad Wilk. And the one that showed the most promise was Bad Radio. Before Eddie joined, the band's main inspiration was Duran Duran. You can probably imagine what that sounded like. And it wasn't working for them. The group decided that they needed a new singer, so they held auditions. Three people were invited, and Eddie got the gig. Largely because they liked his homemade demo of him covering Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City. After Eddie came on board, Bad Radio began to sound more and more like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But there were problems. Eddie had severe stage fright and sometimes had to wear goggles that were blacked out so he couldn't see the audience. He was wearing blinders. Bad Radio ended up recording two demos. One was called Tower Records Demo, which was designed to be sold exclusively at that chain of record stores. The other was called What the Funk, which was paid for by the money the band got for winning a Battle of the Bands contest run by a local San Diego radio station. Let's give a listen to what Bad Radio sounded like. This is called Homeless. That's Eddie Vedder in the years before he moved from San Diego to Seattle to join Pearl Jam. The group is called Bad Radio. And that is from sometime in 1989, about a year before he made that move. Let's stick with future grunge stars. After Kurt Cobain died in 1994, there was a rush to dig out any music that he may have left behind. And there wasn't much, frankly, outside of a bunch of recordings on cassette. And none of them were, uh, well, what you'd call well-cataloged either. It was up to Brett Morgan, the director of the Cobain documentary Montage of Heck, to go through this storage locker that was full of stuff to see if there was anything worthwhile. 
The film was released on April 24, 2015. It came with a soundtrack called The Home Recordings. There were two versions, regular and deluxe. And if we're going to be honest about this, a lot of the material is it's unlistenable. The bottom of the barrel was good and properly scraped with this one. But what this did was give fans a really good look at what was going on in Kurt's head as he tried to create music for Nirvana. It's songwriting and performance at its most raw and its most vulnerable. Sappy is a name of a song from Nirvana's third album, In Utero, which came out in 1993. And to refresh your memory, it sounds like this. Now that's Sappy in its finished form from In Utero. This demo, uncovered for the montage of Heck documentary, has to date to oh, late 1988 or early 89, years before Nirvana broke through. Check it out. And if you save yourself, you will make them happy. Kurt Cobain and the sketch of the song Sappy, which would ultimately appear on Nirvana's In Utero album. Now, at this point, it makes sense to jump from Kurt to Dave Grohl, so let's do that. Grohl started messing with music in his teens. Counting back from the Foo Fighters, we have Nirvana, of course, a Nirvana side project he called Late, and before that, he was in a DC punk band called Scream, which released a couple of records. And before that, a mishmash of short-lived bands that went nowhere but were very important to Dave's development. There was Freak Baby, Mission Impossible, who actually managed to get an opening slot for DC's Fugazi once. There was Fast, and there was Dane Bramage. The first time Dave Grohl appeared on record was with Mission Impossible, a 7-inch single from early 1985. This was a record split between them and a group called Lunch Meat. Now, let's have a listen to this. Dave is not singing, but that is him playing drums. This is Mission Impossible and getting a shite for growing up different. The band is Mission Impossible, that's from 1985, with a 16-year-old Dave Grohl playing drums. And again, the song is called Getting a Shite for Growing Up Different. Around the same time Dave was working with Mission Impossible and Dane Bramage, the band that would become Radiohead, were getting together at Oxfordshire's Abingdon School. Studies got in the way of rehearsal time, except on Friday afternoons, in the school's music room, which is how the band came to be known as On a Friday. Even though it was just a part-time thing back then, On a Friday managed to pull together a four-track cassette in 1986. At the time, On a Friday had a saxophone player and did not yet include Colin Greenwood's younger brother, Johnny. The songs on this tape had titles like Fat Girl, Fragile Friend, and Everybody Knows. There's not what you could call any real style here because we're dealing with a bunch of teenagers still trying to figure things out. Still, a dozen years later, this is the group that would give us OK Computer. So pre-Radiohead Radiohead, then known as On a Friday, with a song called Girl in the Purple Dress. Girl in the Purple Dress. 
That's Radiohead from 1986, a super rare cassette that they recorded when they were still teenagers and known as On a Friday. We are digging out some long-lost recordings made by artists who are famous now, but certainly weren't when these records, tapes, and CDs were released, if they were released at all. We now turn our attention to the parts that came together to form Lincoln Park, specifically what Chester Bennington was up to in Phoenix before he was invited to move to L.A. to sing for this new group. Now, we can go all the way back to 1993 for when Chester was singing in a band with his friend Sean. They had been in a group called Sean Dowdle and His Friends. That's spelled with a question mark on the end, by the way, so uh, hence the up talk. Chester was about 17 at the time. When the band broke up, he and Sean formed a group called Grey Days. They existed from late 1993 through to 1998, and during that time, Grey Days released a couple of albums, helped along by their manager, who ran a local seafood restaurant. The band played a lot, opening for international acts that came through town. Grey Days was, was a genuine local sensation, but for some reason, they could not get any of the large record labels interested in what they were doing. So, burned out and discouraged, Chester quit the group in 1998 and thought about giving up music altogether. Then came the call to audition for an L.A. band called Hybrid Theory. He got that gig, the band changed their name to Lincoln Park, and everybody was off to the races. But let's go back to Grey Days. Two indie records, Wake Me in 1994 and No Sun Today in 1997. This song appeared on both albums. It's called What's in the Eye. Grey Days, featuring 18-year-old Chester Bennington on vocals, and the song is called What's in the Eye. Okay, moving on to Jack White. Most people will trace his lineage back as far as the White Stripes, but that would shortchange his history by a lot. Immediately before the White Stripes, he played guitar under his birth name, Jack Gillis, with a Detroit band called The Henchmen. That was preceded by a run in a group called Goober and the Peas, and before that, we can talk about the upholsterers. When he was 15, Jack became an apprentice to a guy named Brian Muldoon, who ran a place that reupholstered furniture. While they were working, he exposed Jack to all kinds of punk rock, greatly expanding Jack's musical horizons. After a while, Brian convinced Jack that they should make a record together. Jack wanted to play drums, but that was Brian's job, so Jack switched to guitar, and they actually recorded an album. That record was called Makers of High-Grade Suites, and they billed themselves, perhaps not surprisingly, as The Upholsterers. This is called Apple of My Eye, and you can hear Jack's future signature sound coming out already. That's Jack White, still known as Jack Gillis, with his upholstery shop boss, Brian Muldoon, performing together as the upholsterers with a song called Apple of My Eye. Not sure what the date on that record is, but it's got to be from somewhere in the middle 1990s. As an extra interesting twist to this project, Jack and Brian hid some singles inside couches and chairs that they were fixing up. There were about 100 vinyl copies out there of a three-track 7-inch called 
Your furniture was always dead. I was just afraid to tell you. The songs on this single are Riot Block and Cell Number no. 9, Marinette Blues, and Shaken All Over. That last song is by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates from 1960, but it would later be covered and turned into a hit by Chad Allen and the Expressions, the group that would later evolve into the Guess Who. Only two of those 100 or so copies have been found so far. It is so rare that most record collecting sites won't even affix a price to it. I can't even find audio of it posted anywhere. I did find some ancient muse, though. In the early 1990s, all three members played in separate high school bands. Matt Bellamy then became the guitarist for drummer Dominic Howard's band Carnage Mayhem, which then became known as Gothic Plague. Lovely. But then he agreed to join Matt and Dominic in yet another band, which they called Rocket Baby Dolls. They were very much into a glam goth thing. But then, at the behest of one of their teachers, they changed their name to Muse. On November the 26th of 1994, they played a Battle of the Bands contest. Let's sample some of that. This could be the first ever gig that Muse played under their new name. That's a very, very young muse from November 26, 1994. Matt Bellamy is 16 years old. They're performing at a Battle of the Bands contest in Torquay in southern England. Billy Talent has been around forever. Same four guys have been playing recording together since the early 1990s. A couple of years back, I sat down with the guys in the band, and I talked about their pre-Billy Talent years. They were in a band called Pez. There was a couple of tapes we recorded first um, in my parents' basement on Johnny's. He used to have a, a four-track, and back then that was a hard thing to find, and, and he had to task him four-track. So um, we recorded our first four-song demo in my parents' basement, and uh, we called it Demo Luca. And that was done in 94, and we used that to try to get shows downtown. So our first big break downtown was we gave this tape to a guy named William New who had the Elvis Mondays at the old Elma Combo, Monday nights. Downstairs, yeah. And, you know, like months went by, he never called. And finally, we got a phone call on a Monday at like 6 o'clock, last minute, he said, I had a band cancel at 9 o'clock, why don't you guys come up and play? And that, I think that was kind of what started our whole Toronto thing for four guys from Mississauga. Um, when he saw us, Jeff Rogers also saw us, and they kept, uh, Jeff had Handsome Boy records at the time, and uh, and William kept booking us, and, and we ended up doing a bunch of those Elvis Mondays nights, and from there we met so many other bands like The, the Salads, uh, Flashlight, um, just a lot, a lot of Toronto bands, and, and we got into different circles and started getting other gigs. So we have Demoluca. Does that tape exist? Demoluca, anywhere? yes. Does it's, it exist yes. anywhere? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's hard to find. You can find it on eBay now. Yeah, yeah. There was only 100 copies made. Well, look at this. From Demoluca, here's Pez and Happy. That's Billy Talent from 1993, when they were still trading under the name Pez. It's a home demo recording of a song called Happy. Here's one more. This is also from the early 1990s. One day, a shy kid with big glasses came into the radio station and asked for me specifically. 
When I went out to reception, he handed me a cassette saying, this is a demo of my band. I hope you can listen to it. Now, this happens to me all the time, so there was nothing special about being given someone's demo. Now, I wish I could say that I listened to the tape carefully and immediately recognized the genius of this group and became a supporter of them before anybody else. Uh, but that didn't happen. In fact, I think I dumped the tape off with the music department on my way back to the studio and just completely forgot about it. It wasn't until much, much later that I realized that the kid with the big glasses was Jeremy Taggart, the drummer for Our Lady Peace, and that he had presented me with the group's first ever demo. I, I had this cassette in my hand. I, I, Jeremy, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Fortunately, many, many years later, I got to know ex-OLP guitarist Mike Turner. And after I told him the story, he was kind enough to go back into his archives and dig out another copy of that original demo. I have it. The cassette. Yay. This is an early version of a song that eventually appeared on Our Lady Peace's debut album, Navid. This is Super Satellite. Our Lady Peace, probably from sometime in 1993, with a demo version, a version from them before they signed their record deal, of Super Satellite. It got re-recorded for the Naveed album. And again, Jeremy, I'm very sorry. I should have taken you more seriously. It'll never happen again. And uh, thanks, Mike, for salvaging this. Like I said at the beginning of the show, it takes time to evolve into a rock star. Some get things moving sooner than others, but it's a process. In the pre-internet past, most of the false starts, dead ends, and failures would be lost forever. Everything was on tape, either locked away in vaults or in basements, or erased and reused to save money, or lost in fires and floods. Now, though, thanks to digital technology, plenty of this material is preserved for posterity and for future study. Less and less is disappearing, which is really cool. You just got to know where to look for it. If there's something you'd like to talk about regarding the whole topic of before they were famous, just drop me a line through alan at edge.ca. Anyone you want me to track down for the next time this topic comes up? You're also invited to check out my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day with music news, music information, and music recommendations. And to help you keep up, there's a free daily newsletter that will hit your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern time every day. We can also connect on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Google+. And don't forget that we're turning all these programs into podcasts. You can find them at iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand audio. You really should subscribe. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.